0: Land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Borgent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Linardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates,
1: ex-financial planner and mortgage broker.
0: Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey.
2: From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly Two Cents segment. I'm Pete Wargent and I'm here with Chris Bates. Chris, how are you? Pete, life's good here. How are you doing? I'm really good, thanks. Always look forward to our weekly Two Cents catch up where we talk through the big three property news stories of the week. What,
1: what have you been up to through the week? Oh, I've been a busy morning so far. It's my, uh, my youngest one, Tommy. He's just turned two today. So, um yeah, we uh, we didn't get time last night to make all the toys, so which was a bad mistake because they wanted to play with the tool set straight away and the little train set. So I spent the morning making things. Um, so I won't do that again. I'll make it the night before. So dad fail here. What about yourself? What have you been up to?
2: Mate, you've got a terrible twos to come, but I'm sure it will all be fine. <laughs>
1: A two- and a three-year-old uh, right now, so that looks sounds pretty um, impressive when you've got a three- and a two-year-old, and uh, for the next four months, I can say that. So, Yeah,
2: yeah. we're in birthday <laughs> season as well, actually. Uh, both our kids had their birthdays uh, just recently, and, and so did I, so we've uh, been eating lots of uh, sugar and cake and stuff, but uh, yeah, it's been pretty busy. I guess a lot of people are just in a bit of a rush to try and get something either bought or sold before year-end, and a lot of people... I'm actually starting to think about next year because it's been a very tumultuous uh, well, couple of years, really. So a lot of people are just making plans for what to do over the year ahead. So it's keeping me out of trouble. And um, I was on the Australian uh, Money Money Puzzle Podcast, if I can say the words, this week as well, which uh, got some interesting feedback. Don't read the comments, as they say.
1: (laughs) Plenty of feedback there. So that was good. Um, Yeah, what else is happening? Looks very similar here. I think there's a real rush to buy. Um we've had a you know equal number of days, we've got like 15 purchases this month. I think it's the 15th today. So we're equal purchases per days in the month. Um that's used. that's a little bit higher than normal to be honest, whether that's because the business has grown or whether you know we can just see there's a real urgency for buyers coming into Christmas. Um I agree we're starting to see people think about 2024 now. Um and you know whether they should transact now, whether they should hold out to Feb and you know there's a real sort of worry because you know probably only got another week i mean even listing your property next week next week's pretty pretty um dicey right you know 20th sort of of november you run a four week campaign you're at christmas right um and if that campaign doesn't go to plan then that property's going to sit on the market for another 4 to 6 weeks at least um and so you'd have to be game listing your property you might see there's a bit of stock around off market or you know pre market coming on the market next year that they're willing to get people through but I don't know if I'd be putting my property on domain or real estate now unless it was super likely to sell um, as it's a great asset. And um, yeah, so anyway, let's crack on on the three stories this week. Pete. Hey, what have, what have, What's on the cards?
2: Okay, well, first uh, news story, real incomes have been falling in Australia, largely due to inflation, of course. So that's something we'll take a look at. In fact, there was uh, some analysis that suggested of all the developed economies around the world, Australia's got the biggest drop in real income. So we'll have a little uh, deep dive into that. Secondly, a uh, Finn review piece, the rise of land lease estates, which a lot of people aren't that familiar with, but there's a fair few of them around the country now. So we'll take a look at that. That was a Robert Holly piece in the AFR. And then thirdly, a friend of the show, Stuart Weems, um, was in The Australian over the past week or so, a proposal to break Rental gridlock. Uh, Stuart's got a bit of an accounting and financial planning background, so he knows his tax um, and uh, he's got a few suggestions there, which we'll take a look at. So, uh, the first story, Chris, uh, macro business went quite hard on this one. Australian households suffer the world's biggest income collapse. So, interesting point. I mean, I guess um, in reality, what happened is that Australia's incomes went up, but then after accounting for inflation, which has really taken off in 2022 and also this year, I guess um, in real terms, we've basically seen incomes go backwards about 5%, which has taken us back to where we were in 2019. So I guess if you're looking at in nominal terms, the, the amount that people are actually earning from wages and other income, it's been up and up and up as it usually is. But after you account for inflation, which in Australia peaked at Um, a high level over 7% Um, we've actually gone backwards over the past couple of years so it's pretty interesting Uh, we got the sugar hit but now the inflation's taken away with the other hand so uh, did you have a look at that one?
1: Look I mean I have have a read of this and I I think there's two ways you can look at it right so if you are in the camp um, that hasn't had a wage increase or income increase and you know, the way you work and what you do, you know, there just hasn't been that opportunity for you. And a lot of jobs just don't have that benefit, right? And if you then had not had an income in your increase in your salary or much at all um, or a drop because your hours are being cut or something like that, um, and then you've been hit with all these increases in your costs with the electricity and food and travel and fu- uh, fuel, Etc. cetera, um, ultimately you're going to be doing it really tough right now. And I think that's, but that's when you look at the sort of the averages, right? I think there is a subset of the market that, you know, is probably getting wage increases that are above the real inflation, right? I would say this isn't a bad thing, right? And I, I, obviously if you're in that camp one, obviously it is bad for you. But if you think about it at a, at a macro level, if we were still seeing major wage increases with major inflation, that's going to create a wage price in spiral, right? And we're going to get even more inflation because we're going to have to put our prices up to cover the increases in inflation um, in wages, right? And so I think this is actually not a bad thing to show that wage price inflation isn't going to get baked in and we're going to keep increasing rates because it looks like on this that our salaries aren't keeping up with inflation. And so um, if inflation does end up coming back down, um, then you know we're more likely that you know our rates are going to get cut and our mortgage costs are going to get cut as well. So that would be my take on it. I don't think it's a bad thing to see in this scenario, because if our inflation was six seven percent, but we were still seeing real wages go up, that means our salaries are going up a lot more, and then we're going to get all this wage price uh, wage price inflation coming. What do you think, Pete?
2: I agree. Yeah. So rental incomes have obviously gone up. Interest incomes gone up. So the wages is the big one. And since 2020, so since June 2020, the wage price index shows real wages, i.e. after inflation, going back 7.5%, which is an extraordinary drop. I think the thing when you look at the wage price index, though, it always seems to go up very slow and it lags a lot. Um, I mean in reality we've had the tightest labor force settings which we've seen in decades and for a lot of people that would have mean would have meant pay rises or changing jobs or um, you know moving to another location to earn a whole lot more so it's not that every single person in the economy has only seen wages going up at three percent in, in a lot of cases people have seen big pay rises but it's not always reflected in the wage price index now on the day that we're recording, Uh, The September quarter uh, wage price index figures are actually out. So they'll probably show a big jump, actually, for the September quarter, about one and a half percent just for the three months, because all those um, there was an outsized minimum wage increase this year, which won't uh, flow through to the September quarter. All the awards increases as well come through this quarter. And of course, inflation will eventually uh, start coming back down again, uh, which will actually help the real wages on that sort of that graph that's been analyzed. In fact, um, on the day we are recording, U.S. inflation in October was zero. Um, there, was, there was no inflation over the month and uh, down to about 3 or 3.2% over the year. And actually looking ahead, um, rents will fall in the U.S. too. Um, and rents have been a huge chunk of inflation over recent time. So U.S. inflation is almost uh, back down to the target now and it will be fairly soon. And we'll be talking about interest rate cuts over there fairly soon. Uh, I think one of the interesting takeaways as well over the past uh, two or three years, Chris, is that you talk a lot about the um, wage price spiral, but actually it does seem in a lot of cases, it's kind of the other way around. Um, it's prices that go up first and then wages follow as people get minimum wage yeah. increases to match the prices. So I think some of these traditional economic models have been shown to be a little bit lacking. And I suppose the other big lesson from COVID is that fiscal stimulus can be a lot more effective at stimulating demand than an interest rate cut here or there. Because if you give people money, they'll spend it. So yeah, I think um, the, the figures look really bad at the moment. But actually, I think we'll see in 2023, where the wage price index will be up about 4%, probably see something similar next year, inflation will come back down. So yeah, it won't look quite so bad. And I think part of the the 5% drop in real incomes is actually because incomes went up a lot and then uh, inflation took back again.
1: Yeah, and what's your sort of take? I mean, 2024, there's some uh, tax cuts, you know, legislated. What's your take on how that's going to affect things?
2: Yes, I mean, um, yeah, the tax take in Australia has gone up an awful lot, actually, and um, the budget is now uh, tracking in surplus, which seems quite extraordinary when you think back a few years ago Just uh, deficit, endless deficits as far as the eye could see. Um, We've had a lot of income increase, though, from resources. Uh, The unemployment rate has has been a big change. Very few people unemployed compared to recent history. And, yeah, if the tax cuts do flow through, um, that's going to help. Yeah, so um, I think uh, there's definitely a a disconnect here between uh, nominal incomes, which have just kept on rising and rising, and real incomes, which is adjusting for – Uh, the the inflation in other parts of the economy. So yeah I mean I guess um, my main question to you Chris was how does this impact the housing market because obviously record high incomes in nominal terms increases people's ability to pay but if prices are going up as well uh, in terms of expenses I mean how does that impact the borrowing capacity?
1: I think the thing to remember is that um, the property is a property market's price on the marginal buyer right so it's based on how many properties are there for sale? And we know there's very low listings, it's um, everyone's stuck in their homes, the turnover rates, you know, been reducing year on year for a long time, right? People are not transacting anywhere near as much and upgrading their homes every five to seven years, they're doing it probably every 14 years, right? So, um, you know, th- so less and less properties are trading, right? So that's the supply. And then what matters is who's the buyers in the market right now? What are they, what's their situation? And are they getting wage increases? And I think what's happening right now is there's enough people in the market right now, particularly on the the middle to higher income brackets that, yeah, okay, yeah, they're having, you know, because when you go into the markets, when you're confident around your financial future and things like that. So the property market's still priced okay right now because you've got very little supply and you've got enough demand offsetting that um supply and they're people who are doing quite well financially and things like that in terms of how it affects um the borrowing capacity and things like that well the people who are doing borrowing capacities right now who are buyers are probably doing okay because their salaries have gone up and then that's pushed i mean they can borrow more money because they've got higher incomes there are some increases to minimum living expenses which have been quite drastic over the last 12 months with the inflation so um but ultimately, borrowing capacity is just ridiculously tight right now. Not because incomes haven't gone up or expenses have gone up, just because of the way that the mortgage has gone up from 2% to 6%. And then APRA have got a 3% buffer on that. So everyone taking out a mortgage right now needs to make, uh, in the bank's eyes, be able to afford a mortgage at 9%. Um, even though rates have gone up 4.25% now from from uh, 0.1%. So um, that's the thing that's really constraining borrowing capacity. So you're lucky to get a four and a half times your income right now, which, you know, back in the height of the boom in 21, it was probably seven to seven and a half times. So huge, huge reduction um, in borrowing capacity. But they're sort of, you know, I would say, though, that the people in the market right now are probably not what this average suggests. And this doesn't... Um, include the price the debt in the mortgage market uh, and whether that's still people can still afford it and I think this is where this story really lands is people with mortgages if their salaries aren't going up their expenses are going up and their mortgage is going up it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that people are going to be struggling um and uh, you know we are seeing arrears rates go up but they're on very very low. You know, long-term averages. It's not something that banks are concerned about. The banks are being more and more vocal, particularly after their huge profits in the last week or so, um, that, hey, we're getting seven billion profit. And if you're in trouble, give us a call because we'll help you. Um, And I think that um, APRA is also supporting the banks to help. So anyone who is really struggling with their mortgage, obviously speak to your broker, obviously speak to your bank. uh, And try not, do not miss any repayments. That would be the last, last resort. Get a solution before you get to that um, position. Um, And the banks will do things. They'll do payment holidays like they did in COVID. They'll go interest only. They'll do all sorts of things if you speak to them before you get into issues.
2: Yeah, perfect. So, you may well get a discount on your mortgage if you phone up and you're nice uh, to your lender if you're somebody who's in that position. So, Uh, Yeah, definitely worth doing rather than going into arrears. So have that conversation. So uh, thanks for that uh, summary. Chris, shall we crack on with the second story? Um, Land lease estates on the rise. So this was a piece by Robert Harley in the AFR. I think um, a lot of people aren't familiar with what land lease estates or land lease communities uh, or what they are. They're much more common in the US. So uh, in a land lease community, you basically own the home, but you lease the land where the home sits from the community operator and effectively you're paying a rent for the right to occupy the site uh, with a manufactured home or sometimes even a movable dwelling in the US. Uh, so, I mean, this can be attractive for the investors and developers who make money from the annual site fees and then ultimately you know, they can profit from the development uh, or selling off those new homes. After they're constructed. And I guess this is, you know, it's a steadily growing sector in Australia, 12 billion sector, according to the AFR. Across New South Wales, there's about 500 or so master planned land lease communities. So that houses 34,000 people across the state. Across the whole of Australia, it's 130,000. In the US, it's about 20 million people live on these land lease communities. So uh, these, um, uh, i guess uh, communities it used to be quite popular for the over 55s or the retirees um i think though i mean i personally don't like it as a, as the owner um it, it reminds me a bit of um back in the uk we get these sort of um almost like caravans and or holiday lodges and things like that where you can buy into the community but you're paying endless site fees And then when you do come to sell, it's all on the terms and conditions of the the operator, which are never going to be in your favor, obviously. And I guess these are the disadvantages that people need to think about uh, before going into them. Because I guess traditionally, you you build wealth over time by owning a home, but it's not the same as the normal traditional home ownership. You could build some equity on the dwelling, but you don't own the land, right? So um, that's one issue. You're not going to build the equity. But the main thing is, uh, apart from the, the expensive um, site fees, is it's just difficult to resell. You know, when you come to sell, you've got to find somebody else um, to sell to and it will be on somebody else's terms. Um so, and, you know, that's assuming everything goes uh, right with the with the uh, the estate. I mean, obviously, there can be issues in some cases. Very popular with um, the big operators, Stockland, Mervac and so on, who are making good money on this, but probably not so keen on uh, that sort of thing myself, Chris
1: yeah i mean it's great for the person uh providing the land um but maybe not great for the person putting something on that land and paying a fee right the the owner of the land still owns the land lands what goes up in value right and so they're making money on that land by basically leasing it out you know it's kind of like a farmer putting cattle on you know getting the neighbors cattle on their farm they, they don't mind that they get a bit of money from hey leave your horses on my land but i still own the land um And so, uh, and then they charge a service fee, and as long as those service fees can be quite hefty, um, you know, when you add it up across all, so they can make some money on the service fee, and you know, provide some basic facilities for that, but. Ultimately I don't like the idea of building something on that like a little studio that's not like a demountable or something like that because ultimately you're right when you try to sell that like you can't get bank finance on that no one's going to give you finance so you have to be a cash buyer so then only cash buyers can look at it the demountable is going to really age like ultimately you know everything gets older right and so it's hard to make money on that you know you um and you know the rules around selling it and you know, like Pete says, you know, there's going to be a fee. There's probably a huge commission to sell it to somebody else. You're probably locked in. There's, you know, um, there's lots of issues. However, if you could get a shorter term lease of, say, you know, a couple of years, um, and you could park a caravan on there, um, or you know, like a motorhome or something like that, and you just had to pay like a, like saying you a caravan park, but that was your solution to being homeless right and then they had a shower facilities and you had a little community and things like that it's a bit better because if you don't like it you can just put the keys in the car and leave right um and i would say uh and if you still got you can take your asset away but not have to pay you know lose all this money on depreciation so that's been the only time i i do think we're going to need creative solutions but um you know if someone was in this situation where they could potentially borrow you know a little bit more and get a house or an apartment or something like that um, that would solve their long-term housing needs, but they've got an asset that they could potentially sell one day, um, and they're not just you know paying for a demountable house on someone else's land that's going to be going up. I think these are big in areas where they're you know not in the more affluent areas right there, you know, a lot of them are rural and regional and things like that. Um, and I think it's a lot of people who haven't got enough money for retirement and you know they sell their property in the city this gives them a little bit of cash that they can they can afford somewhere to live, but then they can also have a little bit of money to live on. And I think that's the solution. But whether it's a solution for the mass market, I'd, I'd hope not.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? I think um, at the lower end of the market, what people would do, um, you know, if they didn't have a huge amount set aside for retirement, is they could uh, move into one of these estates, you'd probably get uh, rent assistance to help with the site fees and that frees up some capital for retirement. I think one of the challenges is that traditionally, these were cheaper end of the market properties, but actually these days, um, you know, the the AFR piece highlighted, um, there's some sort of premium resort style residences that are selling for $2 million or so and, and they would include things like you know the bowling green and the gyms and the pools, but as you pointed out before Chris, those things don't come cheap usually. Uh, and yeah, some people like the, you know, it's like a clean and uh, very often a, a kind of a, a safe uh, type of environment for people and sort of low maintenance from their perspective. But it, it, this stuff usually comes a, at a cost as well, which is obviously a site fee. So, yeah, look, it's, um, it's not for everyone. And uh, just like everything else in Australia, the supply is not really keeping up with the, the demand for people who want to go down that route. So, yeah, I'll just uh, always say just caveat emptor. this kind of thing and really understand where you're getting into the the number of times that i've heard people in the uk sort of buying onto uh, holiday lodge type estates and you know they enjoy it for a few years but when they uh, come to sell uh, they've got all kinds of problems because it's basically you know it's it's on somebody else's terms they they don't own the land so they you know they find that there's no sort of uh, capital gain to speak of and often it's a loss um, and that's after you account for all the fees that sort of paid over the years so yeah definitely something to be a little bit wary of or, and certainly understand what you're getting into before going down that route.
1: Yeah and I think there's going to be some creative in this, um, communities that are big blocks of land that you know people can't put houses on um, you know we've seen clients uh, in things like this up in Byron to be honest so it's a huge block of land and you know everyone's got their little tiny homes on that land um, and things like that might work you know like maybe there is these but you know the mass market sort of product of the, of the past I think they're not great for the people um you know getting uh, buying into them you know because ultimately when they sell it one day there's they're basically selling a you know an older uh, sort of demountable that's not worth what they paid at the start and then there's issues selling it and then they um yeah there's all sorts of challenges with that so what's story number three Pete? Yeah it's
2: actually one of these estates down our way um just down at Budrum and um yeah thinking about it, actually um Over the past year or so, some of those estates, um, land lease estates in the Northern Rivers got completely flooded out because obviously Mm. there was some massive flooding around Lismore and elsewhere. Um, So, yeah, definitely something to research very carefully before going down that route. So, yeah, third story um, of the week. So um, I was on the Australian's Money Puzzle podcast this week and I was talking about the return of Chinese buyers, among other things. But, yeah, the previous week – On their property segment, Stuart Weems from ProSolution, a good friend of the show, um, he was on and he he had a proposal which was also reported in the Australian newspaper, a proposal to break the rental market gridlock. So uh, just this week, PropTrack recorded record low rental vacancies in October, just 1% nationally. Further declines in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth, uh, extremely tight. SQM Research also reported a drop in rental vacancies to just 1% nationally, so record lows, with rents up 15 to 16% over the year. Louis Christopher of SQM said, with high population growth and only 153 dwellings likely to be built next year, and that's before we account for demolitions, rents are just going to keep rising at a 10 to 15% pace, and he says, basically, immigration needs to be cut. So that was his take. Anyway, Stuart Weems' proposal... Uh, for reform, which was discussed in the Australian, firstly, reducing the lending assessment buffer, which I think you and I both agree with, but also offering uh, stronger capital gains tax discounts uh, for encouraging investors to own property for longer. So for example, if you own a, a rental property for 10 years, you might get a, a bigger discount on your capital gains tax. So uh, what do you think about that as a proposal, Chris? Basically, an incentive for people to hold property for a whole decade instead of you know two or three years and then flipping.
1: Oh look, I love Stuart, and um, there's two oh, elements. i a note <laughs> Yeah, um, I think the first thing is um, absolutely we talk about lending. I think that's the key thing here. The 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 potential future tax advantages of holding investment. I guess you've got to put yourself in the investor's mind. The investor who's got an asset that's not performing very well, it's not going up in value. They're usually the ones who are selling, right? The person with a good asset that's growing. They usually do everything they can to hold it and they hold it for 10 years because they can see the growth in it. And so then giving a bit of an extra tax advantage to them is probably not a good thing because they're going to hold it anyway. It's very, you know, 20 or 50% reduction is pretty um, enticing. The person who's got an asset that's not performing and, you know, it's not going up in value and they've got tenant issues and, you know, building issues, you know, giving them a future CGT advantage for holding might be a bit meaningless when you know they're not going to hold it anyway because it's not going up in value because it's an underperforming asset um and so i don't know i think that's a you know may not get the solution because i think you find that in property investment circles is the people who have got good assets really hold them and people who buy the poor assets buy them and then a few years later they sell them because they realize they're not working for them I think it needs to be a complete shift in how lending works again for investors. I think this is a crisis zone um, and I think we need to unwind a lot of what happened post-2015. And I think even anything, we need to make it pro-investment, then pro-owner-occupier again. Um, because in the last few years, it's definitely been better, especially under hot, lower interest rates, to buy homes than investment properties. And back when I started in lending, you could borrow a lot more to buy investment properties than you could to buy homes. And so I think we need to flip it to that direction again. Um, the first thing, that there shouldn't be a higher rate for investment over owner-occupiers. You can see that in arrears rate. It's actually lower risk because you've got a rental income for that mortgage. And so I think investment rates have to go down to owner-occupier rates. And who's to say they shouldn't be lower than owner-occupier rates? Um, it could be a complete flip. APRA could step in and allow banks to lend investment rates lower than owner-occupier rates. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think they need to give more clarity around interest only. So in the past, you could roll over your five-year interest only, really easily without servicing um, and, and you could actually get 15 years interest only on home uh, investment loans. You know St. George used to offer them. Um, we've got a number of clients who still have those um, because they're so attractive to keep as investors because what that allows you to do as an investor is go, look, I know I can, as long as I can afford the interest for the next 15 years, Um, and I've got rent, I just need to cover that shortfall for the next 15 years, and then I can worry about going on principal and interest after that. By then, though, the rents will go up dramatically, my income will go up, and I can refinance it. So, if we allow people to get 15-year interest only again on investment, and the reason why that's okay is because you don't need to pay off your investment properties. The reality is you've still got some equity there when you go in, or maybe you don't because you've leveraged off your home, but Ultimately, that's not your home, so you don't need to pay that property off. You need to pay your home off. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So maybe make sure your home's principal and interest, and maybe make the rules around that still quite restrictive to force people to pay off their homes. That's better for their, you know, the banking system. But for investors, why are we forcing them to pay their their properties off when they, you know, they don't they could just sell that property and pay off the debt. And so I would allow them to get long term interest only, and for their servicing, I reckon we should reduce the buffer because. Why do we need a 3% buffer on that when if the rates did go up 3% and they couldn't afford it, they could just sell it. It's not their home. And so I would say that you don't need to stress test them as much as you do for owner-occupiers because owner-occupiers could go homeless, right? Whereas, yes, you. and so I would say you don't need to stress them as much. I think they could have longer loan terms as well. I reckon, you know, 35-, 40-year loans. Um, uh, They would be my few. My I reckon we don't. We actually at the moment, we... Discount rents by used to be twenty percent, but now it's a ten percent reduction to rents, um, just because uh, you know, okay, the there's vacancy and costs. Well, maybe do we really need to do that? Maybe it should just be hundred percent of rental income could be included in servicing. So I think if you flip servicing from anti-investment to pro-investment, what's that um, you know famous saying? If you change the incentive, you change the behavior. So. If we change the behaviour for the lending market to be pro-investment, not pro-owner-occupier, you will see more investors enter. You will see more investors being able to refinance and keep their properties, and we flip the tide to starting to create uh, more investor demand, um, and that'll create more, you know, uh, people. You know, and that will that'll hurt some people, hurt first home buyers. Um, and so there's, you know, not everyone can win in these scenarios. You know, we are seeing a lot of investors exit the market. The, all the stats prove that. Who are buying those property first-time buyers so yeah we've got rental crisis but are we seeing higher participation of first-time buyers yes but it's probably not all first-time buyers it's probably on the higher incomes rather than the middle and lower incomes. so that would be my take rather than changing some potential tax settings i think it's a, a lending mindset shift but no there's always a compromise here there's always a trade-off and the trade-offs are the potential first-time buyers who want to enter the market
2: Well, yes, yes. A few different points there, Chris. And yeah, very well made. Uh, I mean, uh, so Weemsy came up with a couple of other potential suggestions, more tweaks, I guess, um, allow people to um, sell an investment property and roll the capital gains into superannuation uh, to encourage people to invest for their retirement. Also, um, potentially reinstating the 50% capital gains tax discount for Australian citizens or non-tax residents working overseas, because currently you're taxed on the full 100% of gains if you're an expat and therefore people are less keen to invest in rental property in Australia. I think um, as Stuart acknowledges in the article, a lot of these are uh, sort of tweaks and sort of Band-Aid solutions. And in reality, um, the rental crisis as it is, anything's going to take several years to yield results and there's no overnight fixes and things are likely to get worse before they get better. Um, Yeah, so to your other points on the three percentage points lending assessment buffer, I I agree. It's too high, like 12 12 further interest rate hikes from here. Come on, it's not going to happen anyway. And as you said, for an investment property, um, that could always be sold. I I think um, in reality, APRA is going to hold that buffer until inflation is back down. I think they're trying to work in tandem with the RBA uh, to sort of Uh, bring CPI back down. And fair enough, I guess. Um, But yes, your point on interest-only lending, that's been shut out of the system largely for the past five years. And there's no reason that can't make a comeback. I think um, on the higher interest rates for investment loans, way back when the Bank of England did a paper which kind of suggested that in a deep recession, um, investors would sort of flood Uh, Or flood out of the market or have a rush for the exits. And therefore, because of that, uh, homeowners would be more likely to stay put, but investors would sell. And therefore, uh, investor loans were somehow riskier. But actually, the experience of the past 20 years in Australia has not shown that to be the case. And in fact, arrears have generally been lower on investment mortgages because, as you say, most people, well, they've got the security of the rental income. And and that's actually a point that Peter Tulip has made, ex RBA. Um, person himself and um, economist of the CIS today, also a friend of the show, um, he's made the same point. There's no reason why interest rates should be higher for investors. And uh, the, the buffers just make it too difficult. I think people are just saying, well, you know, the risk free rate's been near 5%. Why am I bothering with investment property when it's just too bloody hard to get a mortgage? So, yeah, there's plenty that could be done there from the lending perspective, I think. And that would make a, a bigger difference sooner potentially then tweaking with capital gain stocks that's my take anyway
1: yeah i think the expat po- point's really big you know i think there's a lot of aussies overseas that have plans to move back to australia they come to us as brokers we do uh first we figure out all the you know hey you need to get some tax advice on this because the tax rules have changed a lot and it might not make that may rule it out which it does for a lot of people then you got you know Um, issues with actually getting finance. It's ridiculously hard for expats to get any meaningful finance, even though they're earning ridiculous money overseas. They could probably borrow it two times their salary, Um, you know, the way that the whole system has... Um, you know, reductions to their incomes for foreign exchange, not including bonuses, different calculators, a small number of banks. So I think, yeah, you need to get expat lending back. And I think changing the tax settings is, is you know, go hand in hand because if we could get Aussies moving back to Australia, um, buying in Australia, that's going to create some rental demand. And they also, at the end of the day, if they're going to move back to Australia, they're going to need to buy housing at some point anyway. So I would say that's a, and then also foreign investment money, I do think there needs to be a real uh, world um, sort of attack, reducing the foreign um, stamp duties, particularly for new property. I'd basically say zero stamp duty. Um, And I would say if you want to buy new apartments in Australia, um, there's very little cost to buy them. There's very little stamp duty. And then that would pump up our sort of uh, apartment market, particularly if it pushes prices back up. Yep. Yep. That might not be great investments for them but ultimately if that's going to solve our rental crisis in australia and they want to put their uh, money in australia a lot of the time for capital preservation not capital growth um you know because of the fears of where their money could be held and if you know this um, the safeness of that so i reckon that's what we should be doing i think we should be encouraging a lot of foreign investment into australia to support our construction industry and to create more um you know demand for high-rise apartments to be honest Um, it's something we always sort of frowned upon a few years ago but ultimately when we've got vacancy rates where they are we've got a construction industry where it is and we've got fast growing migration we need to do something and if people from around the world want to buy build apartments in Australia and pay for them then I think we should take the money um, personally what's your take Pete?
2: It's a good point actually under the radar um, just over the past week or so the ACT announced that they'll be expanding the concession for people buying off the plan uh, units or townhouse titled properties um, up to an $800,000. So, I mean, that that's largely all of the market really um, for, for people buying units and maybe some townhouses as well. Uh, and that's going to be in place right through until 2026. So, that's encouraging people in Australia in the ACT to buy off the plan. We might see some more of that in uh, New South Wales and uh, Victoria and Queensland maybe, uh, and as you said, maybe trying to get some of the foreign buyers back into the new dwelling market. I guess the the constraining factor at the moment is that we've got this enormous pipeline of infrastructure projects to be worked through, uh, things like energy, uh, transport, uh, all kinds of um, public works underway, and uh, that's taken a bit of the capacity away from the ability to build housing. But also costs, I, I was reading this week that um, – the price of concrete is up 50% since uh, the pre-pandemic level. So all of that stuff makes it hard uh, to get housing built at an affordable price. But yeah, I think um, stimulating the demand for off-the-plan properties, while it's happening in the ACT, we'll probably see it elsewhere too. Yeah, it's hard to believe now, but at some point, maybe in three or four years' time, we'll probably see that supply overhang again it does come around in a cycle. Uh, we get nothing and then everything al- arrives all at once. So, But yeah, in the short term, uh, the rental crisis looks uh, set to continue, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I think this is not for, you know, Aussies living overseas that are moving back or, you know, first-time buyers Not don't fall for these stamp duty concessions. But ultimately, if there was no stamp duty on, you know, new apartments, right? Um, and that allowed uh, people around, and that was marketed around the world. And then, and then, basically, we could make those projects profitable from a developer's point of view. Um, they're the ones, the only ones, they'd be pitching out there. Then I reckon you create a bit of foreign demand. I think if you went around the world and pitched that, and so, um, yeah, that would be my take on how to get some money. Because you know the locals aren't going to a, you know, fall for the stamp duty concessions to be honest, um, and they can't borrow the money. Uh, and, you know, particularly first home buyers and investors can't borrow the amount of money for the projects that do stack up. And so I think there's a real challenge there for the construction in the resi industry, unless they can find some buyers. And I think we've got to, you know, search across shores to fit find those buyers.
2: That makes sense. So just to wrap up on the three stories this week, real incomes in Australia have been falling, obviously due to inflation. But I think if you look at 2024, you'll probably find household incomes rise by about, let's say, five percent. And hopefully inflation gets down to a lower level than that. So uh, things will be on the up and up again. Uh, the rise of land lease estates. Yeah, that's a bit of a, um, a caveat emptor, I guess. If, if it's something you're thinking about, just be very careful about the terms and conditions before you go down that route because they're probably not going to be uh, in your favour. And then thirdly, um, a proposal to break the rental gridlock by Stuart Weems. I just saw the ABS this week had the arrivals and departures figures for the past three months. If you annualize Uh, the sort of net immigration figures, they're still running the last three months at a pace of about 500,000. It's the highest we've ever seen. So there's been no slowdown at all yet. Um, I keep saying that immigration has to peak and it still hasn't. Um, So yes, for as long as that goes on, there's going to be no solution to the rental crisis, quite frankly. Um, And at some point, um, immigration will have to slow. Uh, Capital gains tax proposals is just one of the things... It could be looked at, and Chris has mentioned a whole raft of other potential solutions, making lending, lending easier for investors, encouraging off-the-plan apartments again uh, for foreign buyers and probably some people in Australia too. So uh, I think that's about it for this week, Chris. So um, uh, if people want to get in contact with your questions, uh, we've got links in the show notes of how you can get in contact with us or send us your questions so we can cover whatever you want us to talk about or whatever's a hot topic. Um, so Chris, what's on for the next week?
1: Uh, head down, bum up, what's happening at work for us and our team. So a few new hires and lots of uh, some big plans in there, which I can't reveal yet, but they're um, coming out next year. So, um, yeah, lots happening in the run-up to Christmas. I've got a few weeks in Thailand in January, so I'm uh, excited for that. But, yeah, you don't think about a holiday till you're on the flight, isn't that right, Pete?
2: <laughs> Especially because you've got the terrible twos to deal with, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, it's a bit of golf for me this week, so... Uh, Yes, and uh, hopefully Spurs can get back on track because we've been diabolical the last two weeks. So uh, it is what it is. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Always enjoy our weekly Two Cent segment every Sunday at 7 a.m. and look forward to catching you next week. Chat soon, Pete.
1: Talk soon. Thanks for tuning into the Australian
0: Property Podcast.